Welcome back to Troubleshooting Agile. Hi there, Jeffrey. Hi, Squirrel. How you doing? I'm doing great because we have a really interesting listener question. Yay. Here we go. Let's read it out. It's from Simon, and his question is, I am interested in how far you can go with Agile when you don't really have a design for how a system of multiple software components is going to work. In Waterfall, you would do some kind of high-level design and get it signed off by a technical design authority. How does this phase happen in Agile? How do you avoid it being just a hackathon? Well, that's a, a great question. And I'm, I'm really happy to have it come up because as we discuss the Agile principles, we have talked uh, at different times about the, the battle days and the design phases that used to happen. So to have someone say, well, fine, you don't have your design phase. What do you do instead? The good news is that actually, my experience is that in Agile, you actually can do some design up front. So if that's called for, and you can even have sign off from a technical design authority. So is, I think that, is that it? Are we done? Uh, we can just yeah, say, great. Yeah. Well, th- thanks. <laughs> thanks for listening to Troubleshooting Agile. The answer to Simon's question is you can. Yep. We'll see you next week. Yeah. Well, I think that, I think that's, is that it, Jeffrey? And that's probably a little bit unfair because we we do know that there is this sort of fear that he describes when he talks about how do you avoid it just being a hackathon, and uh, so it's, someone could just clearly say, well, wait, what about Yagni? What about you're not you ain't going to need it? Clearly, that's not the norm that people are going to do high level design. At least not doing high level design is what people talk about more more frequently. So. So what about Yagni? I mean, we do believe in that, right? And I know that you you are a, a big proponent and and particularly some techniques like Elephant Carpaccio. Absolutely. So Elephant Carpaccio is a method from Alistair Coburn. We'll link to it, although his site doesn't seem to be so healthy. So we'll we'll find a way to link to something about Elephant Carpaccio in the show notes. It's a notion of dividing a big elephant, something that may have multiple components and lots of complexity into very, very thin slices, just like Carpaccio slices a piece of beef or whatever else, some piece of meat into into very thin paper thin slices. It's a great idea. You can read up on it. You can hire me to come and explain it to your team. But the interesting challenge is what do you do when you have a complex system of multiple software components? I've got a client like that. They've got an industrial process that they integrate with. So their their clients have factories that make physical objects. And that requires a lot of very tight integration and complexity in the setup phase and in the production of items that artifacts that go to the factory for production of these physical objects. And so they have a complex microservices architecture. And that's what I found when I turned up. Unfortunately, they just weren't doing anything with it. They weren't actually producing end-to-end working software. And that was the, the trick was to get them to the phase where they could actually incrementally get from what we call a walking skeleton. That's a pretty common term. I'm not sure who came up with it first from a walking skeleton to a skeleton with a few more muscles to a skeleton with a a full capacity to produce the item that they were trying to produce. But the, the first bit was to get from the beginning to the end all the way. And that required some design and some thinking about how to create that first initial skeleton. And some of that design was already there when I turned up and some of it had to be applied as we went. But I think that's the the challenge is how do you get to that point where you've you've been able to, to make some of this work? I know that sometimes people will object and they'll say, "But look, we we can't do small chunks. We have to we have to do big pieces of work to get uh, to to drive out all of these components that we have. Like there's, there's just not possible for us to do small bits of value. 
and even worse at this particular example, the notion was, well, we can't do all the pieces, so we have to do a fake piece. So we'll do a piece that just shows a picture of what it's supposed to be, but we won't actually do any of the manufacturing. And of course, that didn't prove anything because it proved they could make a pretty picture on a screen, but it did not produce, it did not prove they could produce a physical item from a, a machine at the at the actual factory. So there's often a case where people are limited by their imagination. They just can't come up with a mechanism of creating small chunks or of creating the walking skeleton to start with. And that's, that's a real challenge. That's a, a difficulty. So the the thing is now we're, we're talking about it, the agile world. And I, we know that it, you just said it's a real challenge that the, the idea is that you still need the skills to, to go ahead and do the design work, even though you're working in this way. Mm-hmm. So, so I think, and if you don't have the skills, you're in trouble no matter what method you so use. So you told me you have ended up seeing a failure mode where people have said, "Well, because we're going to be working this way, we're not going to have our design phase or architecture phase. Therefore, we don't need architects. We're agile. We we can just we can just exactly yeah. we can just fire those people and and, but, and move on." Uh, my companies are usually too small to have a separate group of people called architects, but they will have a collection of folks, uh, one or two usually, who are more senior, who have, know where the bodies are buried in the software, who know how it's supposed to work, who have seen some of the problems and challenges of poor design. And those folks sometimes turn off that part of their brains. And I have to imagine, <laughs> as you say, there, there are cases where people simply say, there, there, is, there are humans in our organization who do this. We're not going to use them on this project because it's agile. And I have the feeling that that's the kind of environment that Simon might be in, where there's a system of multiple components. He's used to going to someone with a high-level design, and he thinks, well, I don't do that because it's agile. I'm not going to need it. I'm using something like Elephant Carpaccio. I'm creating walking skeletons. I don't need this. Is he right? I, I, I definitely think so. I think there's definitely... I, I have experienced cases where people... I, I just think of them as agile zealots, people who have really gotten into the Kool-Aid and uh, and believe it. And when I, when I hear a concern like Simon saying, how do you avoid it being just a hackathon? I have a feeling he may have been dealing with some of these people whose enthusiasm for uh, agile techniques may have outrun their skill set for, for doing so. And to me, what I am often... Uh, recognize these people by the way they describe how different techniques will force good design. So someone might say, oh yes, Elephant Carpaccio, that totally will force us to have a good design because we'll frequently be delivering. Because it'll make us have small components, (laughs) right? Of course it will. That's right. And therefore, those components will have to be decoupled because we'll be using TDD. And because they're decoupled and small and immediately useful because we'll be releasing to the client, and customers and getting feedback, the, the, that'll work. We'll get good design. That's right. And the TDD will force us to design that, that type of thinking that somehow the, the methods themselves force good design, I, I think is simply mistaken. And it, and I think a lot of the time where, where this comes up is when people haven't gone through a different process you and I talk about a lot called joint design. It's, it's not to do with software design, but it's about people design. And what they miss is the knowledge and the information, the valid information that exists within the team. I see this often that someone has come along and said, great, we're going to use Scrum. And because we're using Scrum, we're going to be doing these things on Thursdays and we're going to be doing that thing. And therefore, uh, whatever architecture type activities you might be doing, just stop. We don't need them. And some poor person is sitting in the team saying, 
I really don't think this is a good idea. Nobody's consulted me, and I know exactly where this is going. And often that person then begins phoning recruiters. <laughs> That's right, because the people there who can provide the sort of technical skills, and I think they're often you know, described as the technical lead, or they play that role whether or not they have that title, that those skills still remain valuable. And I think you have a, a great example here of how things can go wrong, which is someone brings in something like Scrum, and Scrum doesn't say anything about design. And the assumption is, well, then we don't do design anymore. We used to have a phase, we used to have architecture documents, but Scrum doesn't call for us to have documents designed, therefore we must not do it. The need for, for whiteboards and conversation at whiteboards to work out what you're supposed to do does not go away just because you're doing sprints or because you're doing Kanban Indeed. or any other uh, technique. Indeed. And uh, if you go and look at the original documents documenting these kinds of things, XP, Kanban, any of the other methods, including Scrum, I bet you'll find a lot about design. But there's a there's a car kind of cargo cult methodology, and it sometimes winds up being waterfall with different names, that simply says, look, all we need is sprints. All we need is TDD. It's going to solve our problems. I think that's your, your agile zealot who's kind of run ahead of his or her skills. That's right. So so let's, uh, if we take the, except for the fact that we are going to need those skills, we will need the sort of architecture design skills that we've always needed if we're going to make uh, software successfully. Then I think now I come back to the question of saying, yes, it's true that compared to the old days where we would have these architecture uh, architecture phases and design phases and big documents up front. The question now is, if you assuming you do have the skills, why would you have a do it all up front. I, certainly, I have a preference for evolutionary design because we will know more later. But that doesn't mean we need to start with nothing. But I think it's a, the, the challenge so, to Simon is why would doing it up front be better than doing it as we go along? And, and I think this is the case where people do, may just not have seen it. So I often describe this kind of thing and people say, well, I've never heard of that. I don't know what it looks like. Could, could you describe a little bit more what you mean by evolutionary design? Jeff? Well, I think uh, I, I know that there's lots of um, write-ups out there in the world. I know Martin Fowler, for example, has something on, on his website as a, uh, as, a, as a tag where he's lots of articles that relate to it. In, in my experience, though, I'll just say firsthand, we would often start with our hard-level design of what we thought the system was likely to need. Up front, we would do whiteboard sessions. We might spend a few hours or even a couple days, depending on the size of the project, working through some of our thoughts. We might even run some experiments if it's a, a new area for us and we wanted to get some more feedback. But the idea is that relatively quickly, we start to say, what's something small that we can do? And this is sort of the walking skeleton idea you described earlier. Once we've sort of outlined the major pieces of our system that we expect to have, we try to make that skeleton walk before we, we go much further. And as we start building things, we start to learn more about what our design should be, and then we'll evolve it. That's one of the things that really struck me when I first read the Kent, Kent Beck's Extreme Programming book, XP Explained. He uh, was just talked about the things that he does and doesn't fear and that every methodology reflects fears, and that fundamentally he did not fear changing software. So the idea that we're gonna change the design later is not something to be avoided. Changing what we do in response to learning is a good thing and a good attribute. So the idea that we're going to do some amount of design to get our, our heads uh, together and get our, our thoughts in the right place, but after that we're willing to change it based on what we learn, to me is a, is a much better approach, and for me it's been very successful. 
Indeed. I remember the first place I read about the walking skeleton notion was in a book called Growing Object-Oriented Software by, see if I can remember right, by Price and Freeman, two good friends of ours. And it has a lot of very specific examples and actually takes you through an example through the whole book where exactly that happens, where they modify the software over and over again and update the design based on things they learn from interaction, chiefly in their case with third parties. So they're building, I think it was an eBay auction bot. And so they discovered things as they worked through it about how eBay worked and how pricing engines worked and other things. And so the design did have to change as they go. But the key thing, for example, in the example, the the case I was describing before with the manufacturing client I have, they created a walking skeleton to start with, and that was a substantial amount of design and work at the beginning. Yeah, sometimes this is also called sprint zero, where you'll create uh, activities that are less focused on immediate value to customers and more focused on immediate value to the team and their understanding. That's of right. Design. And I think you, uh, we often find this when we talk about people ordering work, that it's it's useful to order work in the beginning, uh, things that reduce technical risks, that drive out your uncertainty technically. And then, l- then you bring in things that have the highest business value and you end with the items that have the lowest business value, and that allows you to trim the tail. This is another uh, idea that I got from uh, Alistair Coburn, was this ordering by risk first and then and then by value. If we can get Alistair's site to work, we'll make sure to link to that. <laughs> right. So in summary, the, uh, the the risks that of being a hackathon because you're quote-unquote agile, I think that's definitely true. I certainly lived through the early years of agile when many people used the Agile label as an excuse to do what we called cowboy coding, which was a really sort of an undisciplined hackathon, I think is a, is a, f- a fair phrase. But we actually, we are talking about... Don't, don't worry, Jeffrey. It's, <laughs> it's still happening. My, my clients hire me to put, put that fire out. The, the, the cowboys frequently. are still out there. So, so that, that definitely still happens uh, uh, then. And, uh, but the, the need for uh, design architecture doesn't go away. Design is so important, says uh, X Extreme Programming, that we should do it all the time. And that's really, I think, what we're moving to is not that we uh, uh, just never do it, but rather we, we make it a constant part of our practice. And in fact, it can be more challenging and more interesting to be doing it in an evolutionary way than it is to do it all up front and then go away and hope that it worked. You have to have a lot of interaction with the real world and sequence things so that you can get feedback rapidly. And that's a, an interesting challenge I find usually for the kinds of designers and architects and tech leads yep. that I'm- Absolutely. If, you, if people aren't used to working in that way, it can be unfamiliar. But I think there are uh, people, once they've once they've developed those skills, then they tend to find that it, uh, it's a good trade-off to make. To, to tie it back to our last couple of episodes, you could say that this is an opportunity to fail at something and, and learn about it quickly. <laughs> absolutely. And that's actually why you end up with better result is because you, you get your uh, learning incrementally and in your you're uh, failing more frequently, but at smaller pieces, as opposed to the traditional architecture phase and design phase, it would fail spectacularly, but you'd only find out uh, a year and a half or two years later. Well, I hope that answer is helpful to Simon. It certainly was eye-opening for me to get that noted down and, and recorded in a helpful way. And we're looking, of course, for more listener questions like Simon's. We have a little backlog of them, but we'll keep trying to work through them. The title is Troubleshooting Agile, so we'd like to help you with any troubleshooting you might have. So please go to troubleshootingagile.com and send us a question if you have one. We'd be sure interested to to feature it in a future episode. Thanks, Carl. Okay, thanks, Jeffrey. 